Well, today we continue our, our walk through 1 Corinthians and our sort of large step pace through 1 Corinthians 15, a passage uh, and a chapter of the Bible that really requires uh, a, a slow walk. Um, but as I mentioned last week, we have preached through, I've preached through 1 Corinthians uh, 15 at that slower pace. And uh, so we're continuing the large step um, sections that we're, we've been doing throughout the book. And so we're taking our second look at 1 Corinthians 15 today, verses 20 through 34. Now you will remember that Paul is making an argument here, uh, challenging the Corinthians on so many errors, <laughs> um, false applications, uh, misrepresentations, in this case, bad theology, uh, bad philosophy uh, that they have, particularly with regards to the the idea, not, not just the historical uh, report of Christ's resurrection, but the idea of resurrection. The Corinthians, as sort of good Greeks and Romans, uh, did not believe in such a thing. As we talked about last week, the body for them was the corruptible thing. The body's gross. You know, when you really think about the body and the, the activities of the body, you know, you cut it, it bleeds, it's got all kinds of terrible excretions we won't get into here. Um, you know, but it's, the body's gross. The body decays. The body falls apart. Um, the body is a limitation. It limits me in space and you know, things I can do. Um, so for all these reasons, uh, the Greeks uh, believed the body was not something to value or to prize or treasure. Uh, it was ultimately something to escape and something that we should look forward to escaping. The body was, as they said, the prison house of the soul. It was locking the soul in, and, and one day the soul would finally be liberated and fly free, and, and, and then who knows what happens in the afterlife, if there is, in fact, an afterlife. And so the Greeks had all different kinds of views on that. But one thing they kind of all agreed on is that the body was not something worth valuing. And therefore, it came naturally to the Corinthians to accept this idea that there was, in fact, no bodily resurrection to look forward to. And Paul jumps on this pretty hard. And he's done this, as we looked at last week, in these two prongs, right? On the one hand, he's telling the Corinthians to reckon with the fact that if you the resurrection, the bodily resurrection of Jesus is not like a little Jenga piece that you can pull out and the tower can remain standing. It's not like, you know, okay, well, you know what? I don't like that little piece, so we pull it out of the Christian life, and no, I don't believe in resurrection. It's, it's not that. It's, it's, it's the foundation. You, you remove that out of the Christian faith, the whole thing comes crumbling down. And, and in this sense, I think this is a, a, a great point, again, for us. We've been thinking apologetically for us to acknowledge to the world, like, no, our faith is based on something historical. And if Jesus did not rise from the dead, I will join you in saying Christianity is false. Right? I, I, I will reject it. Like, I'm not going to hold on to it for sentimentality. I mean, that is how firmly we believe in this historical reality. It's not a little Jenga piece at the top of the tower you can pull out. It is the foundation. Remove it. It all comes crumbling down. And Paul has begun to take his audience, the Corinthians, through that with the implications 
if Christ is not raised from the dead, and this takes us back to uh, in verse 12. Now, if Christ has preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some of you say there is no resurrection? But if there is no resurrection from the dead, then Christ is not risen. So if we just say there's no resurrection in principle, well, that means Jesus is not raised from the dead. And if Christ be not risen, then our preaching is empty and your faith is also empty. Again, you remove this. Faith is just some philosophy now. It's just some abstract beliefs, but it's vain. It's vaporous. It doesn't have any significance. In fact, it's false. And yes, we are false witnesses. So, so again, he's just laying out the implications, right? The whole tower comes down. We, the apostles, are false witnesses because we testify that Christ did rise from the dead. Definitively, we said that. We didn't him and haw around it. We came in preaching Christ raised from the dead. For if the dead be not raised, then Christ is not risen. If Christ is not risen, then your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. If Christ is not raised from the dead, there is no Christianity. If Christ is still in the grave, then you are still in your sins and there is no salvation. Those who have fallen asleep have perished. Right? There is no hope for them. They are gone. And then kind of bringing it with a little gut punch Right at the end in verse 19, if in this life only we have hope in Christ, we of all men are most pitiable. We are most to be pitied. Because assuming we are those who have taken up the words of Christ to pick up our cross, deny ourselves and follow him, we have been told if we want to save our lives, we must lose it. We are told to seek first the kingdom of God and trust that all this other stuff will just get worked out. Right? That is the, that is to live is Christ and die is gain. Right? It, you know, nothing can separate us from the love of God, not, not trial, not, you know, tribulation, nakedness, peril, sword, right? And just let it all go. And if we live consistently with that, then we will live lives of great sacrifice. We will live lives of great deprivation. We will live lives of great commitment and, and, and sacrifice for the kingdom. And if all we were hoping is in this life, then we're to, you should pity us. We're, we're most to be pitied, in fact. Because we live in this life as if this life is just a, a, a probational thing for the next life. And so Paul says, do you see the implications of this? You can't remove it and keep the faith. Remove it and the faith goes away. But that's not the only argument he made. That doesn't prove it's true. Just because if you remove it, the whole tower comes down doesn't make it true. It's, he's just helping the Corinthians see the logic. Don't keep calling yourself a Christian if you deny this. This is sort of the argument of like guys like Jay Gresham Machen in the turn of the 20th century. You know, at the beginning of the 20th century, you were starting to have Christians who were denying things like the resurrection of Jesus Christ. They were denying the atoning work of Jesus Christ. It was gross. The, the idea of a bloody sacrifice, the fact that, that God would exact a pound of flesh, if you will, from his own son and, and, and kill him in order to bring salvation, as if God was a mean God like that. And so they began to deny things like that. And they denied miracles. They denied the resurrection. They denied all kinds of things. And Jay Gresham Machen basically writes, his, uh, he writes a beautiful little book I commend to you all and, and very readable and very worth reading just to get a beautiful little condensation of good, basic, 
fundamental theology. His book is called Christianity and Liberalism, in which he's challenging the rise of Christian liberalism, not don't think political liberalism, Christian liberalism, which was a group that uh, was basically denying the fundamentals of the faith. And it was out of that denial that a group called fundamentalism, fundamentalists came, not the fundamentalists we think of as today, you know, sort of which, which uh, kind of became a moralistic fundamentalism, you know, but, but a theological fundamentalism, which said, in order to call yourself a Christian, you must affirm certain fundamentals. The atoning work of Jesus is one of them. You can't say you're a Christian, but you don't think Jesus died for our sins. The resurrection, you can't say you're a Christian. You might be a very nice person, but you can't say you're a Christian if you deny the resurrection. And that's essentially what Paul is saying. These are, these are fundamental things. Remove them and you've lost the faith. But Paul didn't even make the point that that's why all this is true. He actually said, but on top of that, I've seen him. I'm not just telling you believe it because if not, oh no, everything we've held true now goes away. We've got to believe the resurrection or else it all falls apart. That's true, but that's not why Paul believes it. Paul believes it because he's seen the risen Lord Jesus Christ and the apostles have seen him and 500 people have seen him at one time. Most of them are still alive. If you want, go ask them. We believe it because there is historical evidence that it is true. And so these are the arguments that Paul has been making. Now, in our text today, in verses 20 through 34, he, he takes up that first argument, again, the argument of logical implications. And so we're going to actually start with that in verse 29. So I'm going to skip over 20 because Paul is going to, uh, uh, if, you, if you want, pause his argument, right? In verse 19, if in this life only we have hope in Christ, we of all people are most to be pitied. And then he's going to launch into this beautiful uh, explanation of the victory of Christ. We'll come to that in a second. But let me jump back to the implications because he picks that up again in verse 29. And he starts with a very bizarre verse. One of the, one of the again, one of these head-scratching verses in the Bible. One of the head-scratching verses in 1 Corinthians Um and again, sort of a, an, uh, a revealer of the problems in Corinth. And one of these problems is here in verse 29. Otherwise, so he's saying, if, if we don't believe there's any resurrection, then, continuing it, in verse 29, otherwise, what will they do who are baptized for the dead if the dead do not rise at all? Why then are they baptized for the dead? Now, when you, when you read that, you go, wait a second, who's getting baptized for the dead? What's that about? Um, and the uh, what most commentators, almost all evangelical commentators say about this is not that Paul is saying, yes, this is good practice. Uh, obviously, we baptize people for the dead. Uh, you know, so, so why are we doing that if, if, uh, if, in fact, there's no resurrection? That's not what Paul is saying. But rather, the Corinthians are baptizing people for the dead. And Paul is simply calling out their inconsistencies. The Corinthians, we know, had a whole host of problems. And this is one of them. Something going on in Corinth, namely baptism for the dead. You know, the Mormons uh, do this. Um, others, even in the later church, will do this. The Marcionites would do this. Um, where, okay, th this happened when the gospel would come into an area. 
And now, you know, you're essentially saying, well, what about my ancestors? You know, you're telling me this good news. This is really great. Thank you for telling me I can become a Christian and I can have eternal life. But what about my ancestors? They died before this message came. And so, so, well, you could be baptized for them. And that way, they, salvation could come to them. Um, that was the idea. And so you, you're baptized for those of your ancestors who did not hear with the imp- idea being that essentially in some vicarious way, you can give them the gift of salvation. Well, there's nothing, nothing in the Bible that offers any validity to this. Um, but apparently, like many other things, like getting drunk at the Lord's Supper and marrying your stepmother and suing fellow believers and using your gifts to belittle other people. Okay, that, like all these problems that the Corinthians were having, one of them is that they were baptizing each other for dead relatives who did not have the faith. Paul is not validating that here, though you can understand why somebody might initially think that, but it would require, again, us to hold it in consistency with everything else Paul says, and there's nothing in anything Paul says that gives any validity to this. But what we have here is Paul challenging him on their own stupid activities. Like you are baptizing people for the dead, but the dead aren't going to be raised. So what's the point? Don't you see that even there you're holding two beliefs that themselves are inconsistent and invalidate one another. So that's what we believe is going on there. And why do we stand in jeopardy every hour? So not only that inconsistency, but now let's turn to to us, the apostles. Look at the way we live. If there's no resurrection, what we're doing is stupid, right? We of all people are most to be pitied because I stand in jeopardy every hour. And we know we don't need to rehash here the life of the Apostle Paul, right? I mean, the the times he spent in prison, the beatings that he's had, (coughs) the mobs rising up against him. In fact, he turns to that. I affirm by the boasting in which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord, that I die daily. If in the manner of men I have fought with wild beasts at Ephesus, that is, you'll remember when we preached through Ephesus and, uh, through uh, Acts in Acts 19, when Paul was in Ephesus, and the gospel he was preaching was spreading like wildfire throughout the city, so much so that the silversmiths were going out of business because no one was buying their trinkets and their idols anymore you know, to worship the goddess Diana, that it actually started a mob within Ephesus in, in, in basically against the apostles. And so Paul's like, I, do you remember that? Like I had to engage with this like wild beast-like mob of a crowd. Why would I do that? Why would I put myself in these shoes, in these situations? If I affirm by boasting in which you, uh, I have in Christ Jesus our Lord, I die daily. If in the manner of men I have fought with beasts at Ephesus, what advantage is it to me if the dead do not rise? Let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. So here again, Paul is pushing us to be consistent. If you say there's no resurrection, then stop doing the religious thing. If you say there's no, there's no resurrection, then just live according to that. And if you believe that, the consistent way of living would be eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow you die. But if you don't want to live like that, if you believe, no, that's inconsistent, then you've got to challenge your presuppositions. You've got to challenge your basic assumptions. And the assumption you need to come back to is that which I testify to and which I have seen, namely, 
that Christ is raised from the dead. Do not be deceived. Evil company corrupts good habits. And then the charge and the command, awake to righteousness and do not sin. For some do not have the knowledge of God. I speak this to your shame. You all should be preaching this. You all should be out declaring it. You should be calling each other to consistency in our beliefs. But it's to your shame that this is not being done and that there are some who are living with these inconsistent realities. So, verses 29 through 34, Paul continues the therefore argument. If there's no resurrection, then here are the implications. And if you're going to say there's no resurrection, then give up the faith and live according to that. But of course, Paul doesn't want you to do that. He wants you to come back and affirm the resurrection and then live consistently. Now, let's turn our attention to verses 20 through 28, where Paul launches into the counter argument. So, the immediate context of verse 20 is verse 19. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we of all men are most to be pitied or most pitiable. And then just the greatest words in the Bible, I believe, but now. But now. Right? That Paul paints this bad scene. He paints this, he paints this dark cloud. Hey, here's the reality. If this is true, if this is true, if this is true. But now, in fact, you know, but now Christ is risen from the dead. So let's look at that beautiful picture. Right? If Christ is not raised from the dead, we are most to be pitied, but in fact, he is raised from the dead. And then Paul teases it out a little bit for us. First, he talks about the order of things. But now Christ is risen from the dead and has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Now, it wasn't very long ago that we talked about the beauty of metaphors, and it was in, in uh, 1 Corinthians 12 when Paul used the metaphor of the body. And he says the church is the body of Christ. And we said how important metaphors are, images are, to help us understand deep truths. You could sit and talk about it and write essays about it in prose, and you could communicate a lot, but you can communicate all that in a beautiful metaphor. And a metaphor gives you an image to hold up and reflect on, and that's what you have here. Here, Paul talks about the resurrection of Christ in a harvest metaphor. And Christ, he says, is the first fruit. That first beginning, that first ripened ear of the harvest. And what does that first fruit tell you? It's a representative. We know that in the Old Testament, the first fruits were offered up to God. And why? It was offered up to God in thanksgiving for the rest of the harvest that was surely to come. Look, if that first ear comes out, it tells you that the rest of the field is right behind it. And Paul is using that metaphor to give to the Corinthians and to us as a beautiful image of that eternal harvest that is coming. The fact that Christ rose from the dead is not just an historical event. Okay, wow, interesting, a man came back from the dead. No, 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 you're, you're, you're viewing it as something too little, just a miracle. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is the beginning of that resurrection at the end of the age. Remember, Jesus says to Mary there at, uh, at the grave of Lazarus, he says, you know, do you, I'm the resurrection of life. Do you believe? He said, well, I believe, I believe in the resurrection, you know, or, or Lazarus will live. Do you believe this? And she says, well, I believe in the resurrection at the end of the age. And he says to her, I am the resurrection. I am the resurrection of life. 
right? The, the fact that Jesus comes up out of the grave is the, re the resurrection, not a resurrection, the resurrection of the dead. It is the beginning of the harvest. He is the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Meaning that since Christ has come out of the grave, all will come out of the grave. He is the first fruits of all those who have fallen asleep. I just think that's a metaphor that we should receive from Paul and think about, play with. It tells us that the harvest has already begun and therefore the full harvest is certain. For, now he draws the, the theological link here, for since by man came death in Adam, by man also came resurrection from the dead. Paul condenses his whole representative theology that he talks about in Romans 5 into that little sentence. By one man came sin, by another man came life from the dead. By man came death, and by man also came resurrection from the dead. God, as man bearing our flesh, bore our sin, that by overcoming that sin, he might overcome it for us all. Verse 22, for as in Adam all die, even so in Christ all shall be made alive. Jesus Christ conquers death for all, even non-believers will be raised from the dead. Now, as the scriptures say, heartbreakingly, and, you know, it, it shakes us to our core, to our nerves, that they will be raised from the dead only to receive what he calls the second death, eternal death. They will be raised from the dead to enter into eternal death. But they will enter into eternal death bodily. They will be raised from the dead unto judgment. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive, but each in his own order. Christ the firstfruits. Afterward, those who are Christ's at his coming. So Christ the firstfruits of this beautiful harvest, and if, if we had time, and maybe even in Sunday school we can look at it, in the book of Revelation you get two harvests. You get a harvest of grapes, and a harvest of wheat. And the harvest of grapes are harvested and then taken to the wine press of wrath and crushed. And the harvest of wheat is harvested and brought unto the Lord. And one being that harvest unto judgment and one being a harvest unto life. And that's what Paul is talking about here, this harvest unto life, but each in his own order. Christ the first fruits afterward, those who are Christ at his coming. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father, when he puts an end to all rule and all authority and power, for he must reign, that is, he will reign, until he has put all enemies under his feet. And we get that image from Psalm 110. The Lord said to my Lord, right? David is, David is reflecting upon his son who will also be his Lord, who will receive all kingdom and authority and power from God the Father. And that's what Paul is saying here, that Jesus Christ will reign, is reigning, until all things are put under his feet. You know, it's interesting. Sometimes we think about, you know, uh, the, the spread of Islam and Islam looks for world dominion, 
you know, that ultimately, you know, Allah must, you know, reign and rule over all and Islam must spread and rule. I mean, Islam means submission after all, that all the nations must eventually submit to Allah. And while that's off-putting <laughs> to us as sort of uh, Western uh, Westerners, uh, nonetheless, they're right to talk about world dominion. <laughs> the, the, the struggle, the religious struggle of the world is one for world dominion. Christ will have world dominion, right? The, the, the idea of world dominion in every nation submitting is exactly what the Bible says is true of Jesus. Every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess. Every rule and every authority, every enemy will be put under his feet. It's an image of cosmic dominion. And this is the Lord we serve. The one who came in our flesh, died for our sins, was raised from the dead, ascended to the right hand of the Father, saying to his disciples, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. And he has ascended to the right hand of the Father, from which he rules over heaven and earth, having all authority. He must reign until he has put all enemies under his foot. Right now, at this moment, Christ is reigning sovereignly over every kingdom, over every authority, over every power in all the cosmos. And he will do that until his purpose and his royal plan is fully executed. And you will know it's fully executed when finally every enemy in his time is placed under his feet. And the last enemy to be defeated is death. And hence, I chose for our New Testament reading that that passage that is relatively familiar to us because we've read Revelation a lot in this church. That beautiful passage in Revelation 20, where you get another image of that climactic battle at the end of the age when all sinful and evil powers sort of raise themselves up against the Lord and against his anointed, and he casts his enemies into the lake of fire. But the last enemy, Satan and the beast in those imagery, in the imagery of Revelation have already been cast into the lake of fire. But the last enemy, before we get that glorious vision in chapter 21 of the new heavens and the new earth, of the bride of Christ descending from heaven, the last enemy to be thrown into the lake of fire is death itself. Death and Hades, the place of the dead, are thrown into the lake of fire. They have no more purpose anymore. The last enemy to be defeated and to be destroyed is death. And I, I, it's one of my favorite little passages in the Bible because I think, can we think of a better image than death itself being thrown into the lake of fire? What a glorious day that will be when, however it looks, <laughs> death and Hades are thrown into the lake of fire. And then what will happen when that last enemy is destroyed? Then, and Paul wants to make clear, now when it says he has put all things under his feet, he doesn't mean every single possible thing because the Father will not be under his feet. There is, if you will, still something above him, namely the Father, to which he will then, having put all things under his feet, he will take all the authority he has established, the world he has finally dealt with and judged, 
and purified, the harvest that he brings in of his people when all things are subdued and ordered and put in their proper place, then he will turn and submit it all to the Father. And he himself, the King of Kings, will bow before his Father and submit. For, quote, he has put all things under his feet. But when he says all things are put under him, it is evident that he who put all things under him is accepted, i.e. the Father. Now when all things are made subject to him, then the Son himself will also be subject to him who has put all things under him, that God may be all in all. God is all in all. Here Christ stands over the church, if you will, and over the creation, he, he had entered into it. Now he stands over it, ruling. And when he sets all things in order and does what man should have done, subdued the earth, filled it and multiplied the glory of God within it, when he has done that and all things are ordered and perfected, as man, he will turn with us, you know, and submit and offer all things up to the Father, so that God is all in all. God is the ruler, and God is the subject. God stands above, and he stands beneath. He is the, the giver and the receiver, if you will. And, and hence, we have in the incarnation, the, the God-man. He, he, he represents both sides, so that God is all in all. And that's what's happening in the resurrection of our Lord. And so for Paul, this isn't merely, oh no, if we don't believe this, the whole thing crumbles. That's true. But Paul just pauses that argument to launch into this beautiful theological reality about what has happened in the resurrection of Christ and what will happen. And brothers and sisters, what will happen? You will be raised with him. You are part of that harvest. And therefore, I want to encourage you, wake up to righteousness. Live as if you believe this is true. We're going to come to it next week as Paul is going to give the command at the end. Be steadfast, immovable, knowing that your work in the Lord is not in vain. Wake up to righteousness and live knowing that the harvest is already beginning. Remember Jesus with the Samaritan woman, and he tells the disciples, look, 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 look at the fields. They're white unto harvest. The harvest is already beginning. Therefore, look at this short, vaporous life that you and I are part of. It is fleeting. And know that you are part of something solid, that you are part of something lasting, and that the coming of the Lord is nigh at hand. These are, if you will, the end days. Not that Jesus will come tomorrow, though maybe he will. But since he rose from the dead, it has been the last days. The harvest has begun. Therefore, be awake to righteousness and live as if it were true. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you that he is the first fruits of an eternal harvest. And we thank you that by your grace, you have made us who are by nature thorns, who are by nature grapes fit for wrath but that you have made us wheat for, this, for the sake of your glory. And Father, we pray for all those who do not know you. May they come to know you even through our witness. Keep us faithful, we pray, that we might live as if 
the resurrection of Christ were true. Forgive us for the ways in which we live as if this life is the only one we get to live, eating and drinking and making merry because we have to get the most out of this life. Rather, help us, we pray, to lay this life down for the sake of that eternal glory, which is most certainly ours in Christ. For we ask all these things in his name. Amen.